Well, I'm going to have you guys open to the book of Exodus. <clears throat> Turn to chapter 13. We're going to continue our study in this book. We are looking at pictures of redemption. Those pictures of redemption are found in the Exodus and they're found at the parting of the Red Sea. And we're going to come right up to that event of the parting of the Red Sea today. But <clears throat> so are you there in Exodus 13? Before I get there, I do want to pray. Here is something I know that is amazing about the word of God when it's read or when you read it. The Bible says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. I believe that as we worship, as we read and study and meditate upon the word of God, I believe that it is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it restores, it refreshes the soul. So I want to pray that today, as we look at the word, that the spirit of God would restore your soul this morning. That many of us would be like Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing his words and being refreshed in our spirit. So Father, I just ask you right now, refresh your wearied people, your inheritance. That's us, your people, with your word today. Speak truth, speak life, O oh God. Give us ears to hear and give us hearts to obey. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Are you there with me? Exodus 13, I'm going to start with verse 17. I'm going to read, and it's quite a bit, but I'm going to read to chapter 14, verse 12. Here we go. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was the shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Now, can you see this picture? Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etam, Etam on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of, fi in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back. I want you to highlight or underline or circle those two words, turn back. We're going to come to that, those two words in just a bit. Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihaherot between Migdol and the sea. There are, they are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. 
and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Now understand, he's using his covenantal name here. They will know that I am Yahweh. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as as they camped by the sea near Pihahirot opposite Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people. Now, obviously, what I'm about to read here, Moses has been seeking God and God has been speaking to him, though we don't read that because he tells them what the Lord has said to him. The Lord answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Wow. You know, I want to ask you a question just before we dig into this. What if you discovered that the resurrection of Jesus was not a bodily resurrection, but that when he was placed in his tomb, his body stayed there, and scripture was just trying to talk about a spiritual resurrection. There are actually some people who believe that. They also deny the gospel, though. This most powerful event in the New Testament, once it's undermined, it begins to undermine the gospel. Now, to a lesser degree, a lesser degree in our day, people undermine the parting of the Red Sea. They try to explain it. I'm going to talk about that in in just a moment. But in downplaying the miracle, this amazing miracle at the Red Sea, they are able to then proceed to pretty much downplay any of the miracles in the Old Testament as well as the New. So here's how they do it. Now, the reason why I'm pointing this out to you, let me, is because even in conservative Christianity, there is a tendency to rely so heavily upon scholarship that they begin to deny what Scripture is actually teaching. Now, we must be careful about this. You know what? I believe that God created the world in six literal days. It's very common within Christianity to disagree with that. Either that it took 
millions, hundreds of millions of years, or that God caused creatures to evolve. And I'm not going to get into that, but that begins to undermine certain teachings in Scripture. Even so, when we start denying such a miracle as the parting of the Red Sea, we discover that this is really not such a big miracle after all. Now, it starts with their understanding of Red Sea. Actually, this phrase is Yam Suf. The word Suf, we are told, is the word for reed or reeds. We see this actually in Exodus 2. When Moses' mother puts Jesus into the basket, into the Nile, where does excuse me, his, where does Moses' sister put the basket? It says amongst suf, reeds. That's how we would translate it. So consequently, what they do is with this understanding of suf as reeds, they call it the sea of reeds. Now, if you look in your Bibles, I've, I've, got, a, I've got one right here. I'm just going to show it to you. It's an older one, but you, it's still in many of the NIV study Bibles. There's a map here, and on that map, it talks about how they have discovered that this phrase, Yam Suf, really means sea of reeds. Well, I'm interested in where they're going with this. What do you mean by sea of reeds? So as they begin to explain it, they say, see, reeds do not grow in salt water. So this was not a saltwater sea that God could have parted. It was a freshwater sea like the Nile, but obviously God didn't part the Nile. So he parted, as I'm going to show you here, he parted one of these lakes, Manzella, Bala, or one of the greater or little um, bitter lakes. Now, the problem with Bala is that it's three feet deep. It's a marsh. They say, well, before the canal of Suez was built, it probably flooded from the Nile and it was prob- might be able to get as much as 10 feet deep. And so God parted 10 feet of water and drowned Pharaoh and his entire army of water in, in 10 feet of water, if it was even that deep. Manzella, which is to the north, is a lake that borders the Mediterranean Sea and it is shallow as well. It's a marsh. See, reeds grow in marshes, marshes are shallow. And so many have proposed one of these lakes as the sea of reeds. And in doing so, just how big of a miracle is that, that God drowned an army in three feet to 10 feet of water? If you were to jump into the deep end of a pool, would you drown? Now I'm assuming you know how to swim, I would venture to say, even if you had some sort of armor on, you would be able to swim. Apparently, no one in the the Egyptian army could do this. They were overcome, and they all drowned. Now, include the fact that there were approximately 2 million or more Hebrews that passed through this body of water. It's not going to be about 20 to 30 feet wide. It's going to be closer to half a mile wide. So when you next time you see the Ten Commandments or some other uh, movie, just understand that even in that movie, it doesn't even compare. Two million people to cross, you would need at least half a mile wide of the parting of the Red Sea. And so none of these lakes fit this. Additionally, we realize 
that if we were to, some, and I do need to mention this, some, instead of saying these lakes as possibilities, they say that they came down here. Can you see this? And right here, that's where they crossed, right there. It's about 25 feet deep. Now, the only problem with this is we are told that Napoleon, him, Napoleon and his army himself crossed that portion of the Gulf of Suez at low tide. Again, another naturalistic explanation, though that last one I mentioned to you is generally the one that the church has held throughout the ages, though some have held to the two that I'm about to share with you. And I want to share with you, and I'm going to be brief here because I want us to see that this parting of the Red Sea was not a small miracle. It was a huge miracle. It is that backdrop, that picture of God's redemption that now is fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ and the new life that we have. They, are, they had left Egypt, and now God had rid the Egyptian army and Pharaoh himself as a result of the parting of the Red Sea. So let me, let me just say this. We, in Jonah chapter two, verse five, as Jonah is running from God, he is in the Mediterranean Sea. He is thrown overboard. And in verse five, it says that Suf wrapped around his head. Now, though this was several hundred years later, let's understand that this word Suf does not only mean reeds. As a matter of fact, in most of your Bibles, it's translated either weeds or seaweed. Suf. So yes, there are suf in saltwater bodies. Also, if you were to look at 1 Kings 9.26, let me see if I can read that to you. I'm just going to mention it. Oh, here we go. 9.26, it says this, King Solomon also built ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Eleth in Edom. Edom. Let me show you where that is. It's right over here. This is Easy and Geber, just so you know. Let me read it again. King Solomon also built ships at Easy and Geber, which is near Eleth in Edom on the shore of the Red Sea. So apparently during Solomon's time, they called the Gulf of Aqaba the Red Sea. Even in Moses' time, when, the, when God rid the land of the locusts, it says he brought them to the Red Sea. I would propose to you that that would be the Gulf of Suez. So the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba, and the Gulf of Suez, much like two fingers on a hand, would form the Red Sea. I'm going to suggest to you that these were not lakes. These were deep seas. In Exodus 13, 18, if you were to look there, we actually read it. And chapter 14, verse 11, it clearly tells us that they had already left Egypt to cross the Red Sea. But if we were to see any of these lakes, they would have still been in Egypt. They would not have left their place of captivity. A wide path for two million people would, would need to be made that does not fit those lakes. <coughs> the Israelites were apparently trapped with the sea on one side and Pharaoh and his army on the other. With any of the lakes, they could go north or south and escape. Even with the proposal of this portion of the northern portion of the Gulf of uh, Suez, they would be able to have escaped south. But they couldn't. It was the sea 
or the army. They were trapped. There are two places that I would recommend. One, I would strongly suggest. And the only reason why I'm doing this again is I need us to see that this miracle was a huge miracle. It wasn't just caused by a mere wind blowing. Actually, it was blowing from the east towards them, and it's called a strong wind, which in the Old Testament many times refers to a tornado. But God brought this and supernaturally parted the sea with a wall of water on one side and a wall of water on the other. So I'm going to suggest one of two places. I'm going to have to do it over here. I th- well, no, I can do it here. That they came down this, uh, no, I'm going to have to do it over here. Can we turn the camera this way? Ah, okay. So just because of some changes that we have made, I still can't show you. But at the very bottom of this portion of, of the Sinai Peninsula, which, by the way, did not get its name until 300 A.D., so don't let that mislead you. They believed they had found Mount Sinai, and then they applied the name Sinai Peninsula. It's generally called the Arabian Peninsula or the Arabian Desert. So they came down here to the very tip and crossed in the southern portion of the Gulf of uh, Aqaba. That would, that would have allowed them to cross over a land bridge that would be about 25 or so feet deep. The only problem with this proposal is there's still opportunity to escape either north or through one of the valleys. There's many valleys that wind throughout these mountains in here, one of which I'm going to now tell you about. And I'm going to suggest this. And when I suggest it, I'm going to encourage you. There is a new movie that has come out. Actually, it's in two parts called The Crossing of the Red Sea by Tim Mahoney. He is the director of it and the researcher. He has acquired numerous materials. Um, And I'm going to suggest to you to watch these two videos. They're about two hours apiece. There's several books that would back this up. And I'm going to encourage you to consider this. That they followed the pathway across the desert, which which would be a trade route. Pihahirot would be about here, and they turned back. Turned back does not mean that they turned 180 degrees backward. In the Hebrew, it simply means to turn or turn away, to turn away the wrath of God, for example, this Hebrew word is used. So therefore, what did they turn away from? Well, where were they heading, church? They were heading to the promised land, but they headed in the opposite direction. They turned back. To turn back, though, they had to follow what would commonly be called a wadi or a valley. That means there's, it's narrow, there are mountains on each side, and you follow this valley half a mile or so wide, and it led them to the Nuweba Beach. The Nuweba Beach is located right about here. The thing about the Nuweba Beach is you can easily fit two million people on this huge beachhead, but you cannot flee from it north, south, or east. To the west is the Gulf of Aqaba. To the east would be where they came. The thing you need to consider is when the cloud, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, it was able to stand between the army and the people of Israel. But if it was an open space like a lake, how how would that keep the army of Egypt from them? It had to have happened in a narrow place. And I would suggest this. To cross this right here, north or south, it is very deep, but right there, 
right here. It is about 10 miles wide. It is about a half mile deep. The incline is about 7% down and 7% on the upper side. This is generally what you have maximally on exit ramps on interstates. The, I believe the uh, wheelchair, you're allowed up to 6.5% incline. But at 7%, it's easily doable. Scripture also says that none of the Hebrews were feeble. Even the elderly were strong. Consider that. I'm going to suggest to you that this was a powerful miracle. So powerful, if you read in Psalm 136, you will see the display of the, of the psalmist brings attention to the parting of the Red Sea and then into the taking of the land of Canaan. He, he also brings one other event to your, your, our attention, and that is creation. So consider this, that the author of that psalm places this event, the parting of the Red Sea, on par with the miracle of creation. To demonstrate what? This is the psalm that speaks of God's unfailing love, and his love endures forever, and his love endures forever, and his love endures forever. Church, Jesus rose again from the dead because his love endures forever. God parted the Red Sea. God drowned the Egyptian army because his love endures forever. God brought them into a land of giants because his love endures forever. God did an amazing miracle because his love endures forever. Now, I want us now to, to look at this because in the beginning of chapter 14, God does something. He makes them turn back. But why does he do this? As they're, mar as they're moving across the land, and by the way, it doesn't say that it took them only three days. It just says that there were three campsites that they spoke of. It doesn't mean that they only camped three times. But there are three cities or sites that are described there. They turned back at Pahiroth, and... God was in this process of stirring up Pharaoh, his officials, and his army. To what end? So that Pharaoh, with his army, would chase after them. Why? Because God wanted to destroy Pharaoh and destroy his army. And I'm going to suggest to you that in our lives... God will allow us to come to these Red Seas in our lives, if you will, and he is purposefully ambushing the enemy. He is purposely setting up the enemy. To what end? Because what the enemy intends for evil, to destroy, actually, to, to be more exact, Pharaoh's goal was not to kill the Israelites. His goal was to enslave them again. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. God stirred up Pharaoh's heart, allowing circumstances to interact and his mind to wander, his heart to become greedy and hard that he would pursue after the Israelites. And as he did, he caught up with them. And we find that God has actually brought him to the Red Sea, and it feels, at least from the Hebrews' perspective, that they are doomed. May I suggest this to you? That this is that the, the Exodus is a one-time event. As we now move into the new covenant under Christ, it is a one-time event. That is a picture of our redemption, of our salvation. 
But the parting of the Red Sea, as we now move under the new covenant, this is something that will happen many times in our lives. There is therefore one exodus, but many parting of the Red Seas. As we now move into the new covenant, pictures of God's redemption. (coughs) God set up Pharaoh. God, in the hardest times in your life, he is setting up the enemy for destruction. What did, you, what did Moses say to the, the, the Hebrews? Look at them. Look at those Egyptians. Beyond today, you will never see them again. Now, as they approached, they weren't even there yet. But as the army approached, moving down this wadi, this valley towards them, hadn't even arrived, they were filled with fear. And what do they do? They cry out to the Lord. Can I ask you, in your moment of trial and hardship, why do you cry out to the Lord? I truly believe, there are two reasons. Number one, I believe that by faith in prayer, and, and, and I would word this from a very human perspective rather than a divine perspective, but from a human perspective, prayer moves the hand of God. All right? <laughs> prayer is effective to that end. God is desiring people to respond in desperate faith to him. Can I ask you, do you think these people are desperate before the Lord? As they're crying out to him, I would say absolutely. And as they're crying out to the Lord, he is wanting to hear faith. He is wanting to see that as, as they pray, they are being changed. So prayer seeks to come before God and move the hand of God, if you will. But it also is to transform us. When they had finished praying, do you see any indication that their hearts had been changed? Look what they said. Oh my goodness. Moses, were the graveyards in Egypt full that you had to bring us out to the desert to die? The firstborn of every family in Egypt had died. There's a truth in this. They're not just kind of pulling something out of the hat. A lot of Egyptians had died. Yeah, the graveyards were full. Literally, they were full. So that's, is that really why you brought us out here? So that we would die? Wow. I think they're missing something. Church, I really think they're missing something. They are fearful. They are walking by sight. You know, I have to say that in my own personal financial difficulties, God has always come through, but I always get anxious. To this day, when I go through financial crises, I still get anxious, I still get fearful, and I need God to minister truth to me to replace that fear with faith. God is needing to do that for these Israelites. They're filled with fear, God sees the big picture. He's the one who stirred up Pharaoh. He's the one who knows exactly what's going to happen. The Israelites don't. They're afraid they're going to die. That's not even reality because the Pharaoh wasn't going to kill them. He was only going to enslave them again. Fear is being stirred up. What is the purpose for dying in the desert? I guess the graveyards in Egypt were full. They were also afraid that they were going to die. They were afraid 
or rather that they, they were coming to a conclusion that being slaves in Egypt is better than freedom. Freedom that apparently is now going to lead to death. Really? Death. Can you see how Satan has set them up to believe all of these lies? They had just seen 10 of the most amazing miracles that any people group throughout history had seen and God was going to abandon them in the desert outside of Egypt to die? Do we not feel this way at times, though? You see, Satan's goal is to undermine, excuse me, Satan's goal is that he wants you back. He wants you not serving God. It's not that he wants to kill you. He wants to enslave you again. But remember what a rescue plan is? It means he takes you out of a bad situation into a much better situation, not a worse situation. If God were to have them die at the Red Sea, there was no rescue plan. That was a sabotaged plan. That was an utter, epic, failed plan. That is not the nature of who God is. If God created you, Psalm 136, to demonstrate his love, his enduring love, he is going to do something for you. At the darkest moment of your life, he will part your Red Sea because his love endures forever. It will be a miraculous thing. He's trying to show them and teach them this. Here is our problem, though. Let me come back to that in one moment. The, the, another of Satan's goals is that he wants to undermine God's promises. You see, the parting of the Red Sea can be with many different things, but something needed to die in that sea, Pharaoh and his army. God promises you, Romans 6, he says, your old man was crucified. He says, your flesh was crucified. Keep crucifying it. Throughout your Christian life, keep crucifying it. But the flesh, the anxiety, every time I go through a financial crisis, I need to be reminded of God's sovereignty and of his love and that he has delivered me thus far from every single financial crisis. He has always come through. And he will in the future. But I tell you what, when I get there, I still feel that anxiety. May God change my heart every time. May God change your heart. May he fill it with faith every single time. Every time you're facing these difficult things, the flesh wants to latch on to the fear. And God is saying, but I've given you a new creature. I've given you a new nature. I've given you the new man. Put on the new man. Don't believe the lies. Believe the truth. And church, what is the truth? It is those precious promises of God. What are those promises of God? There's so many of them in the scriptures that would apply to your life today. Believe those promises. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. That's what your flesh wants to do. That's the initial emotional response in a crisis. Don't latch on to those things. Turn a deaf ear to them. Hopefully when you pray, and, and I believe this, that the reason why they didn't change is that their prayer was filled with complaining and arguing and obstinance. So when they were done crying out to God, 
They just turned to Moses and did the very same, said the very same things to Moses. We're gonna die. It was better in Egypt. Have you ever felt that way before? Wow, Christianity is so hard. It was so much better before I trusted in Christ. Wow, really? Was it? Was it? Can I just tell you that the grass is always greener on the other, or we believe that it's always greener on the other side? Always. It always seems that way, is it? I'm going to tell you right now, rarely ever is it. It just isn't. They had truly forgotten how bad it was in Egypt. Now, this isn't the only time that they are filled with anxiety like this. We read on in, in Numbers 11, 12, 13, 14, and on, complaining, complaining. You brought us out of Egypt to die in the desert of thirst or hunger or the, 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 the Anakites, the giants in the land. We're, we're, why did we do this? 400 years we've been waiting, and, and, and now this? Great. Door closed. God's not for us. He brought us out of Egypt to die. Thank you so much, God. And we can feel this way. We can feel abandoned by God. Can I ask you this? Did, did God really abandon them at the Red Sea? Is that what he did? Pharaoh had a trained army. They had chariots. What army with this many chariots ever loses a battle? Come on. Well, let's begin with this one. He lost. But that's not how the Jews felt. That's not how the Hebrews felt. Filled with fear, believing lies. Can I tell you this in Psalm 77? It says this, verse eight. Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? These are legitimate questions. But the psalmist moves on. You'll see in a second. Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Now here's his response to all of these questions. Faith now begins to undermine the fear. Then I thought, to this I will appear. The years of the right hand of the most high, most high all-powerful, sovereign God in my situation. You see, the psalmist is facing his Red Sea. Is God going to part it? Or has he brought me out of Egypt to die here? I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all of your works and consider all your mighty deeds. If you were to just go a few verses later, guess what event, historical event, he appeals to? Look at it. Psalm 77, he appeals to the parting of the Red Sea. And he says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God will lead you. Do you know why I'm confident of this? The very last verse that I read, four, actually 13 and 14. This is what Moses said to them. Fill with fear, fill with complaining, believing lies, totally lacking in faith at that moment. Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the, that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. 
You need only to be still. Now, we're going to look at that a little bit more and how that plays into the following verses, but today I want us to see this. God is saying, stop. Stop fretting. Stop worrying. You know, when I was in college and I finally had my dream come true to go to a Christian college, you remember what my testimony was this past Friday night at graduation? I was angry with God. I was so disappointed. I ran out of money. I thought for sure God was going to provide. Summer jobs didn't pan out the way I'd wanted. And I was hopeless. But God had to show me that this was a complete setup. God wanted to build a testimony in your life. Even as he's building a testimony in your life today, he is wanting you to see that you will never see those Egyptians again. He is wanting to show you the power that he has. So just stand there. Watch what he is about to do and be filled with faith. Stand firm. Have faith. This is a setup to build your faith, to show you that God's love endures forever, church, forever. That means beyond this crisis in your life, beyond this parting of the Red Sea that you're about to experience, God will do something amazing. Can you believe this? Can you embrace this truth this morning that we serve a God who though the enemy has these evil intentions, he is able to bring everything together for your good. That is the God that we serve. Every fear that you're feeling right now, allow him to change that, to replace it with faith. You know, God had me come to my Red Sea, one of my first Red Sea, six months after I gave my heart to Christ, in which I broke cartilage in my knee. God just took the sports that were in my life, threw them out the window for me. Thank you so much, Lord. And I was angry with him. I was confused. I was hurt because sports were what I leaned on. My insecurities caused me to find my value in something that God said, you know what, Mike? You need to find your value in one thing, and that is my unfailing love for you right now. And for God to build that in me, he had to do something so hard and pull sports out of my life. And initially, I thought that is a really cruel thing. But years later, I look back and I say, wow, God, thank you so much. Thank you for drowning my Pharaoh and his army in the sea for me. I needed that. Today, can you let God do that for you in your life? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would teach us so much through your word. Give us insight into your word. Speak truth right now. Spirit of God, show us that we can trust you. Latch on to these promises, Lord God. You are good. Your love endures forever. You have not abandoned us. Today we stand at our Red Sea and we are asking, God, please part this and drown my enemy.
don't let me be drowned. You will walk through the fire and not be burned. You will walk across that raging river and not be swept away. God, this is who you are. Build my faith, please. In Jesus' name, amen.